I was hesitant to even go to my cafeteria because there will be some nasty stuff written yeah. about what is this Indian guy doing, mm -hmm. telling us what to do kind of thing on the yeah. boards. Right. And I would walk into the coffee room, there'll be complete silence. This is the Indianness Podcast, stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together. Because every story is unique, and we have a very unique and special one today. I'm very excited to have Raj Gupta with us today. He's the former CEO of Roman Haas, and he was one of the first CEOs of Indian origin in a publicly traded company in the U.S., Raj also sits on the board of many publicly traded companies now. I invited him on this show as he's been through an amazing journey of change and opportunity, growing from a small town called Mohammedpur in Uttar Pradesh, India, to the CEO of a very large publicly traded company. I want to know how this journey became possible. Welcome, Raj. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you very much for your introduction. So, Raj, as they say, to know about the journey and to know about the person, you really have to go to the beginning. So can you take us right to the beginning? Where were you born? A little bit about the environment, about your parents and your siblings? So my father, Pool Prakash, was a civil engineer who graduated from Rurki University in 1941 and spent his entire career in the UP Irrigation Department, ending up retiring as a chief engineer. In the, in the department. My mother was unique. Although born in a little town called Sikandra Rao in UP, her father was an overseer in Punjab Irrigation Department. And she was one of the five siblings and spent most of her early years in hostel, which was unusual in those days for a lady. And she'd finished 12th grade class of education. So she was very educated, very independent, and obviously, like all the marriages in those days, it wasn't a arranged marriage. My father was 21 and my mother was 19. But I would say that, you know, my mother is the one who raised us. She was a strong woman, basically, and cared about the children. She was a homemaker. My father traveled a lot. And she's the one, and we are six of us born in seven years between 1944 and 1951. Wow four daughters and two sons. And I was number two in that hierarchy. I have one older sister. So you can imagine, you know, growing up in a family of six little kids run by a strong mother. But I have to give them credit for a lot of things. First, that my father was one of the most honest civil servants you can think of in India. We lived within our means and all their philosophy throughout their life was all we can pay for is your education and your food, nothing else. And I think that formed the basis of all of us trying to work hard and stay humble and honest and not worry about the consequences. So in many ways, we all owe a lot to our parents. But my mother did have some strong rules. And one of them was that all her daughters had to get married before they're 20. And none of them could become doctor or engineer. 
But as it turned out, one of my, my older sister became professor of botany at Allahabad University. The two of them did their master's in physics from Rurki. The fourth one became a master of education. So they found their passion and all of them went and had built a career. But they were all married before they were 20 years old. In my case and my brother's case, my father, he was a civil engineer, so he wanted one of his sons to become a mechanical engineer and other one to become an IAS officer. And as you know, in India, in those days, a lot of that guidance came from parents. So I was nominated to become a mechanical engineer. And I was fortunate enough to get accepted at IIT Bombay. Bulk of my childhood, as I said, my father moved around. So I was born in Mohammedpur in Merit District. We lived in Bareilly for a number of years. Then we lived in Itawa. Then we lived in Kanpur. Then I lived here in Aligarh. And then I went to Bombay. At age 21, I moved to the United States. So we lived in different cities, but growing up. But I would say there was a consistency in the way we were all raised and what we believed was important. And I would say, you know, while we were all uh, decent students, there was also a little competition between all of us. And if my sister did well, I had to keep up with her. If I did well, my brother had to keep up with that. So it wasn't something that was forced on us by our parents, but it was something that came naturally. One other thing I would say about my parents, that they didn't believe just in education. Being well-rounded to them was very important. So they encouraged us to play sports. They encouraged us to make friends and social circle and not just be preoccupied by just, you know, reading and working hard and getting good grades at school. So all in all, I would say my childhood was a very pleasant experience. I frankly do not think of except for one instance, and that is something worth mentioning. And I remember that so vividly. 1954, I was like nine years old, and my father used to travel a lot to give him his job. One day entered the house unexpectedly in the evening from a trip, and he was brought prematurely from the trip. And he could barely recognize us. He was completely disoriented. And that's why one of his associates brought him home. And he was diagnosed with encephalitis. And that is a day that stayed with me and still stays with me today. And frankly, we were fortunate because it took him six months of intensive care at Agra Medical College to cure, get cured. And my mother went with our youngest sister, who was six months old at that time, of one year old. And other five of us were basically separated from our parents for a year to be with our uncles and aunts in different parts of the country. And I have vivid memory of that because to me, I thought this was the end of the world for us. But to give him credit and my mother who looked after him, he recovered. He was never the same person, even after recovery, but he was an incredible father. We sort of, you know, spoke very few words, but when he did, they were important. A very caring husband, but also somebody who really was not a pushy kind of person. He was very balanced. So that's one memory of my childhood that I will never forget of what we lived through. And we all thought this may be the end of our decent life. Raj, want to ask a few questions on that because you painted such an amazing, vivid picture. And, you know, some of those memories, 
Raj, dad moved around quite a bit within UP because of his job. So you moved around also with him, right? Correct. How was that transition? New school, new friends, new environment. Was that difficult for you? Don't think so. I think, you know, that's something which uh, came naturally. We didn't feel like, where are we and what do we do next? And in fact, but it did lay the foundation and we'll talk about it. Our ability to then come to United States, uh, move to England, move to France, move to Asia, come back to United States. I think that foundation kind of facilitated the way for us to stay mobile, make friends, adjust to the new culture. All of that really, in a way, was instrumental in making our transitions later in the life much easier. So that kind of ability to adjust has helped you and later on, as you said. So because that was just a natural process for doing that. So Raj, you talked about mom being the one in terms of schooling and stuff like that for homework. Was mom helping? Very much so. As I said, she was very educated for Mm -hmm. those times. And I still remember two things about her. Whenever we'd come back from school, she will sit us, all six of us, around the dining table. And she will make sure we do our homework. And she used to open all our bags. And if she found anything that didn't belong to us, like a pencil, rubber, whatever, she'll say, this is not yours. Where did you find it? So we would say, you know, we found it here. We found it there. She said, just go back and put it where you found it. This is not yours. So she was very much that way, focusing on homework, focusing on things that really made us really straightforward, honest people. The third thing she said, as soon as we finish our homework, go out for an hour and a half, play with your friends. We used to play badminton, hockey, soccer, I mean, all the activities. So that's why I said, you know, they raised us as fairly well-rounded people and not just saying study, study, study kind of focus. So she set some ethical rules by saying, hey, this is not right. You need to go back. She was a role model at that time, was she? She was a role model. And I think even today, she remains a role model for all six of us. We actually had her 100th anniversary recently. And unfortunately, end was very tragic. She was murdered in her own house in Ghaziabad in 1993 by somebody she knew, and we never found out by who. And that's the other saddest memory that I have of our family, is uh, somebody who was so clean living, caring, giving person, and she opened the door to somebody she knew to give them water in the middle of a summer. And whatever they thought, she was living by herself in that house, which we had built for her. And they knew that she was alone. It was a big property. They thought this woman must have a lot of money or whatever. We still don't know the reason, and we still don't know who it was. Very sorry to hear that. Raj, so dad was mainly out on work, right? When evening, you were doing homework. Dad was not part of the dinner and the homework, right? No, I would say he used to travel like two weeks every month. But when he would be home, he would always, you know, that's the other rule we had is lunch, breakfast, we did our own times and own things. But at dinner, all eight of us will sit down at the table. And that's where we would have conversation about each other, what we were doing, 
And my father, not really quiet, but, you know, as you say, he was very inquisitive and very interested. So he was not like a distant father by any means, or a disciplinarian father. He was a very engaged father, but he was also a very quiet person. Well, I would say one of the highest standards in terms of ethics and moral that I can remember. Uh, and it was different than, I would say, what was practiced in the area that he was in or by his colleagues. I mean, you know, that's why we all ended up going to public schools, local right. schools, no private schools, no boarding schools, none of that. I think uh, they believed in just living within their means and doing the right thing. And the schooling, how was schooling for you? A good student, average student? What would you consider yourself? I would say based on the ranking in the classes, I was a good student. Good student. I was, you know, like always ended up in schools in early grades, first, second or third in my class. And the UP board, which is a big exam, more than two lakhs. I finished number six in the whole UP board. At IIT Bombay, I finished number two in my class. I think I would say I was certainly above average student. I would say by any standard, for sure. Raj, coming back, mom used to always send you out for an hour and a half for playing games and stuff. And you used to play with siblings or friends or what was it? And was it competitive? I would say with siblings, but also a lot of friends. You know, I think one interesting thing I would observe is that although my parents weren't there watching us, but they sort of kept an eye of who we were keeping company with. How? Well, to answer the question, we'll come back and ask, who was there today? Who was playing with you? Okay. And they obviously lived in smaller communities, uh, so they knew the neighborhood, they knew the parents, they knew the reputation. So without being direct, but they would just ask, who were you with? And occasionally they would say, just be careful kind of thing. That's about it. That's about the instruction that they gave us. Yeah. So they were watching out. You know, They were watching out without being, you know, watching over your head all the time. That's true. Raj and the six siblings, who are you closest to growing up? I would say, you know, it's a really interesting question that you ask because I would say three of us, the three oldest one, my older sister, myself, and my brother sort of grew up together, yeah. went left home around the same time. And our three youngest sisters are very close. So three youngest sisters were kind of grew up together. And, you know, even after we had left, they were still together with the parents and studied in the same room. So I would say it's sort of split between two groups. Two groups. Three on one side, three on the other. Right. But uh, sister was obviously, you know, leading the way in terms of academics and other stuff for you. And brother was also pushing you. Because you were so closely, I mean, a year, year apart, right? Yeah. So I would say, you know, my older sister was an amazing student because she finished her high school at age 12. She finished her MSc in botany from Aligarh University at age 19. And she finished her PhD at age 22 from Indian Institute of Agriculture Research. And then she went on, as I said, to teach in Canada, teach in Libya, teach in uh, India, and was head of the department at Culture University. And then she started her own business. Unfortunately, she is pretty much in coma today. She has suffered a brain tumor, and for the last three months, she is not in the best of shape. I just talked to her daughter this morning. 
But she set an example, and I sort of followed. I would say it was between me and my brother, it was an interesting relationship. We competed a lot in sports, and he was a lot better sportsman than I ever <laughs> could be. He was the lefty, you know, left-hander yeah. and everything, badminton yeah. to cricket, everything. Yeah. And I was better in studies. So there was, a, there was always a little dichotomy between us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't like competing in the same domain. Right. We competed in two different domains. Two different domains. And he pursued a very different career than I did. Did he get into IS like dad wanted? No, he didn't. I mean, you know, this is another great example. Allahabad University Mayo College was the prominent place for students to go and qualify for yep. IES. And he was accepted there. He was there. A year into it, my parents realized he is distracted. And he was a bright student. And so pulled him out. He ended up going to Aligarh Muslim University to finish his engineering. And then after third year, he joined Indian Navy. And he was in the Navy for until age 40, and then he left. And then since then, he had done multiple business things around the world and in India and all of that. Another thing I would say about our family was the ability to fight the odds. So at age 33, he had a massive heart attack. Oh, my God. And today he's like 77 years old, still active. Always willing to, you know, he has had strokes after that. He had other health issues. But one of the things I say, which is unique about all six of us and probably comes from my mother and father, always staying positive despite the odds. I mean, whenever we talk to him, uh, even today, I talked to him this morning, said, how are you doing? He said, wonderful. I'm watching the world cricket matches. So I think, you know, the ability not to complain too much. And stay positive is something that I would say we learned from our parents. Both mom and dad, both? Both mom and dad. We never heard them, heard them complain. Raj, just briefly want to go back to when dad got sick, because that was a big uh, traumatic time for you, because you were shuttled around between uncles and aunts at that time, and just everything kind of was there. At that time, till that time, life had been in that cocoon, six of you, living, dad was traveling, mom was there every night, dinner, and suddenly everything fell apart. Dad had to go. What was going through your mind? You thought, hey, I don't know if dad's going to be better again, or am I going to see my, your sister went with mom, right? She was about a year and a half old. Yeah. My mother took her with her, okay. and all five of us were kind of shunted between our uncles and aunts. You know, it was a time so uncertain about what's ahead. What we did know, even as little kids, that we lived hand to mouth. We didn't have a lot of wealth. We did not own a property. Even that time, I would say, and I, I remember that well. I mean, I think we also worried about what could happen without knowing how it would unfold. I mean, we were too young to know exactly what we had to deal with that adversity, how we'd we deal with it. But I think we relied on our mother to figure out what we would do if something really bad happened. But do you think there was some level of insecurity in your mind? Or is that kind of level? Well, there, there, there is no question. There was an enormous amount of uncertainty and insecurity. At, at least in my mind, I can't speak for my siblings. But, you know, I think we all went through that 
phase of, of not knowing exactly what's ahead of us. You think that's kind of stayed, that memory has stayed with you for a while? Obviously, the memory has stayed with us, but equally important, it has given us that courage, conviction, or a sense that things can go off track, things don't look good, but stay patient, stay focused, and you know, wow. things will come out okay. And I think that's something that we all have sort of practiced in our lives at different times. And I mean, I can talk about uh, example of my wife's two sisters in their 20s, one dying in a car crash and one dying in a fire, leaving kids behind. And we were living in England at that time. So we have gone through, I would say, our share of tragedies. And when you have a large family, it's probably not unusual, but uh, being able to accept those things and keep moving forward without becoming bitter or cynical or or sad. I think more looking forward as to as opposed to looking back attitude is something that we have learned from those experiences. Well that's great. Raj, you made one comment that if I may just ask you to explain a little more. You said dad was never the same person after the sickness again. What do you mean by that? So I would say, you know, I mean he he was a right person, active. And I saw after his recovery from illness, he became very self-conscious. For example, he could not speak fluently and his mind wasn't as sharp as it was before. And I think he was conscious of that. And as a result, he became more subdued and within himself after that illness. It was quite person to start with, but I think he went even Michelle. more and introverted after that experience. How old were you at that time? Well, as I said, you know, I was literally nine, ten years old because it was 54 when you yeah. were diagnosed. He was gone for a year. It took him a year to recover. One thing I would say, my father, number one, he never drank, mm. not overweight, he exercised and prayed every day. So he was a very disciplined person. But at age 59, he went to the bathroom and my mother was sitting in the bedroom and he never came out. So that was another one of those things. And I was in the United States. So I went back to England and my youngest daughter got the call from India for my cousin. So again, he lived a clean life, caring life, responsible life. And, you know, year after his retirement, age 58, he was gone. So a lot of challenges over a period of time, which we'll talk about. So Raj, let's say you finished schooling. Where did the thought of going to IIT come in your mind? I want to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Let me talk about my IIT days and then Cornell mm-hmm. and my career, if, if you want. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. So as I said, you know, I was the one nominated to become a mechanical engineer. Yep. And I sat in the Pan-IIT competition and rookie and applied to Benares. And then, of course, I was fortunate enough to get a decent ranking in the Pan-IIT competition. So I went to Kanpur IIT campus, and that's where they ask you, so which IIT you want to go and which branch of engineering you want to study? And I had spent four years in Kanpur. So when I went there, they asked me this question. So I said, I want to go to Bombay and I want to do mechanical. 
So they were kind of puzzled. Hey, you know Kanpur, yeah, from UB. Why don't you go here? This is a place for you to be. And you want to go to Bombay? I said, Bombay is a big city and it's, it's something I, I want to just uh, make a change. So, I mean, without knowing exactly what to expect. And I was fortunate to get my choice because in those days, almost literally number one choice was mechanical, number two was electrical, yeah. and like number three was civil, then metallurgy. There were only five branches of engineering in those days. I was lucky to be selected for IIT Bombay Mechanical Engineering. And that's what really got me to IIT Bombay. And I would say those five years there were interesting experience for two reasons. One, you know, obviously in those days and even probably today, some of the smartest and brightest students aspired mm-hmm. to go into IIT. There are many more than uh, the five we had in those days. And the second thing was that it was an interesting experience. Most of them were extremely bright, but also came from states like Maharashtra and, and, and uh, Delhi and modern school and doing school and all these uh, elite schools. And frankly, I would say they considered kids coming from UP and Bihar as like low-class, underprivileged students, you know. And so I think that through five years, it took me a while. And I think that's, again, that experience paved the way for me to learn and accept and figure out at the end of the day, people have biases, but once they know you, it all goes away. And that for me has served me so well in my professional career, wherever I was in Europe or United States or in Asia. And I said, okay, well, it is what it is. I'm just going to do what I know what to do is to just focus on why I'm here. Was it academically challenging, Raj? Because you suddenly came from UP, a good college. Now you are with superstars from around the country and being very blunt, maybe little, they are a little more sophisticated than you, so to speak, or at least they think they are more sophisticated <laughs> than, you, than they think. You know, there must have been some adjustment period too, right? I mean, adjustment was more at a personal level than as a student academic level. As you said, with this intense competition and you make your effort and you know that you can compete with them successfully and they see it too. And, and oh, it doesn't take very long, you know, one semester and two semesters, they know that, you know, Raj is as good or better than we are. And, and uh, it's something that it's not a question. And there was more about social acceptance. And it changed over time, over a year, two years. But I think it was a good experience that you should focus on what you are there for. If you demonstrate that you are capable, a lot of the other things go away. I mean, I tell you an interesting story. So we had uh, recently a reunion on Zoom of the class of 67. And one of them was, you know, Cyrus Mehta, who is an entrepreneur and a professor at MIT. And he said, Raj, one thing I remember is when you were in the hostel, we all used to line up outside your room to ask you questions and help us do our homework. I mean, this is like... 57 wow. years later, he remembered. Wow. So I think proving myself academically paved the way for not feeling an outsider. And I would say even professionally was very much the same. When I had my 25th anniversary dinner at Roman Haas, you know, my closing comment was that I felt like an outsider everywhere when I joined. 
and you have made me feel like an insider everywhere I am. And I think that transition takes time, and I think it takes both sides to really get to that level. And I was very fortunate to work for a company that was just absolutely fantastic for 39 years. Going back to IIT, yeah. slowly you got accepted. Made any friends there, Raj? I mean, Cyrus, obviously, Cyrus, obviously. But any slowly people warmed up to you? Any friends? Well, you know, it's interesting. So I've made a lot of good friends, but over time, for whatever reason, and almost three quarters of my class came to the United States. And I have known a number of them, where they are, what they're doing. And that may be just me. I had not kept in touch with most of them, other than some Pan IIT event. That's an interesting question you ask. It's probably true even within my own family. My wife does a remarkable job. She's a lot closer to my family than I am. I'm just a, I wouldn't say a loner, but I really think I'm more like my dad. When I'm with everybody, I enjoy the company, but it's not like I need, feel the need to be always connected, be on the phone or doing these kind of things. I, I don't know why it is like this, but that's the way I am. You're wired that way. Maybe it's yeah. a little bit like that. But the IIT experience was good overall. No, absolutely. It I, prepared I, you uh, well? It prepared me extremely well. I think it gave me confidence on a number of levels. One was that I can compete with the best of the best. And the second thing was, as I said, the students came from all different states, all yeah. different economic strata, and that I can become friends, be accepted by anybody, okay? And I think irrespective of the class. So I think that those two, and as you know, India is so different in terms of culture, languages, yeah. all these issues. And I think it, it was an elevating experience on both those fronts that you can compete and you will be accepted. That's great. Now, you came second in uh, IIT. I want yeah. people to understand who don't know IIT who are listening is IIT is like the creme de la creme. And then coming second out of that entire class is like just out of the world. How did that feel? I mean, you know, you, a kid coming out of Mohammedpur in UP, in IIT, Pawai or Mumbai, and then coming second. Wow, what a journey. What did it feel like? I don't know if I have uh, a sense of that. I think since it was building up every year, you got your ranking in the. So sometimes I was fourth, sometimes I was third, sometimes I was fifth, and I ended up number two. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like wow, it was a big know. shock. It was like one big exam that says, "Okay, I made it." Okay. Kind of thing. So it was like a, a steady process, but a big achievement. So then what did you decide to do? You decided to come to the U.S. Why? You know, it's interesting. That is an interesting question. A couple of things happened. There was a very interesting relationship between Cornell University and IIT Bombay. When it's 1963, which was the first graduating class of IIT Bombay Mechanical Engineering, one of the number one in the class went to Cornell to do their master's degree in operations research computer science. And the head of the department there, I still remember Professor McCaffrey, was mm -hmm. so impressed by the quality of this graduate that for a period of 10 years, he gave number one, two, and three 
a scholarship to come and do either master's or PhD at Cornell. Okay, I mean, so there are at least 30 plus graduates of IIT <laughs> Cornell in operations research. They took the best from them. They took the best, and you know, a third of them did their PhD. I'm the one who did master's. So that was my ticket to come to Cornell. You didn't and know anything about Cornell, right? The fact there's a precedence of yeah. so it was a place I wanted to apply and I was accepted. Except they wrote to me literally, sorry, we gave out too many scholarships, so we'll have to delay your admission by six months, mm-hmm. or you have a choice to pay one semester of tuition from your own pocket and you can come now. It's fall of sixty seven. And as I said, you know, my parents didn't have the resources. Uh, we didn't have money, about $1,000 in those days, but it was big enough for them. So I told them I would join, uh, join you in January of 68 instead of fall of 67. And then I called my professor at IIT Bombay. So he said, Raj, since you've got six months, I need somebody to help me. I'm working on a project. Can you become my associate lecturer? So I ended up teaching the same class I had just graduated. Oh, my God. At IIT Bombay. At IIT Bombay. Wow. And there were three <laughs> or four students who had flunked with me. <laughs> <laughs> so you were teaching your uh, students? Yeah, I went, <laughs> and and uh, I mean, that was, to me, was one of the most fascinating <laughs> experiences. You know, they would giggle in the back of the class because they knew me as a kid. So I did that for six months, and then on January 68, I came. In the cold, in the winter, you ended up in Ithaca. Ended up in Ithaca, New York, and i tell you another interesting story of that, because so when I got that mission and scholarship, and I was like a 22-year-old kid, and I went to Merit, where my dad was posted in those days, to get my visa to come to the United States. And then my wife's Parents from Aliga, Kamla's parents, just happened to call and say, we understand your son is here. Can you come here and um, meet our daughter and decide, you know, if, if we should get them engaged? I mean, being a 22-year-old, what do you know? I, mean, I just told my mother, whatever you want kind of thing, right? <laughs> so we drove the following day to Aliga. I just put a ring in her finger and we got engaged. Oh. And then I thought I'll come to the United States and probably take finish my master's, work for a year, and go back and get married. I had like four weeks left. And uh, then two days before I was leaving, or one week before I was leaving, my parents tried to call me in Bombay, saying, you know, your bed is fixed for 26th of January or 28th of January, 68. But they couldn't connect in those days. The phone calls didn't work. Yeah. So <laughs> I took my train. Back to Delhi, I think a week later, I'm heading out to the United States. And my parents were there at the old Delhi, and my train stopped at New Delhi, and I got off. So they looked for me on the train to take me to Aligarh for my wedding that evening. And I didn't know, I didn't see them, so I just took a bus and arrived in Merit. And then my housekeeper saw me and said, what are you doing? You're getting married this evening in Aligarh. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so, being an obedient person, I took a shower, got in the bus, and took a bus to Aligarh, and that evening I was married. Oh, my gosh. Okay, and then a week, week later, I came to the United States in January of 68, and Kamala joined me in August of 1968. So when you came to the United States, how was that, Raj? Tell us. 
because you're coming, okay, you, you were in Bombay, so it was a big city. Still, there was not the communication of the internet to know everything, etc. And you were coming in the peak of winter to Ithaca. So as, as I said, you know, there were like a lot of precedent students from IIT Bombay who were right. at Cornell. Some of them were doing a PhD. So at least there were five or six alums of IIT on campus in those days. So I was in communication with one of them. And he said his roommate is leaving, so I'm most welcome to become his roommate as when I arrive. And he will meet me at the airport to pick me up. So I knew where exactly I was going to go. And in those days, that's when we talk about the book, that's like I'd eaten $10 in my pocket at that time. And my flight out of Kennedy to Ithaca got delayed. So I got there late and he didn't show up. I had to take a cab. All I had was the address of where I was going to stay. 218 Eddy Street, I still remember. And I showed up at the door with $3 in my pocket, right? I mean, so, so mm-hmm. that was the start of the journey at Cornell. And he became a good friend over time. And we stayed together for for eight, nine months until Kamala came. And then we moved into a married to housing quarters there. So I think that was the start of my journey at Ithaca, New York. Cold weather, small town, not knowing anybody. But, you know, it was a very interesting year and a half, three semesters that I spent there because I thought I, my whole goal was to do PhD and go back and teach at IIT. That was a dream. And frankly, after one semester in operations research, it occurred to me, this is so theoretical. This is not something that I can get excited about. So I told my professor, I'm just going to finish my master's and move on. So he was disappointed, but that's what I ended up doing. And I would say one thing, is that none of my moves in my career I could predict. Well, eventually it got planned when I got in a corporate career towards the end. Right. Generally, I wouldn't say it was... Some big strategic plan. No, no big strategic plan of what I'm going to do and where I'm going to work and how my career was unfolded. And anyway, that kind of unfolded. That's true. So you finished the master's because you didn't think, you know, you wanted to do PhD. Then what happened, uh, Raj? You know, what happened was interesting. 1969 was a very tough time in the United States because it was peak of the Vietnam War. Jobs were not easily available. But I was very fortunate. So I interviewed a dozen companies. And after my master's, I got a job with Burroughs in Detroit, Mm -hmm. IBM in Endicott, New York, with the Scotch paper in Philadelphia. And I'm trying to remember the St. Regis paper where I had worked one summer, four mm-hmm. companies came and offered me a job. And they were all between 11 and a half and 12 and a half thousand dollars a year compensation, which was pretty competitive. And it's interesting why I chose Scott paper as mm-hmm. opposed to any of these big tech names. IBM or Burroughs, which was big Burroughs, tech. exactly. Yeah. And the reason was... Simple. I mean, this is why you sort of make decisions based mm. on emotion as well as what do you think makes sense for you. So we were expecting our older daughter. And the mm. only relative I had in the United States was my uncle, who was a professor in statistics at Villanova, just outside of Philadelphia. And the other thing was two other things. One was Scott Paper sent the company plane. Now, you have to wow. remember, 1969. For two of us to come and interview and be sent back the same day. Oh, my God. 
And the last thing was, that was the warmest of the all cities that I had job offers in, Detroit and Antioch, New York. So yes. those were things that led me to got <laughs> paper company, not IBM, not Burroughs. Not Burroughs. So uncle was there. It was a warm climate. And they sent a private plane. Well, great reasons. Why not? Great <laughs> reasons. So you moved to Philly to join Scott Paper. How was that experience, right? I would say fascinating experience because Scott Paper in those days were the prime in terms of Scott towels and tissue. And three months later, I had a boss who was also IIT Cornell alum. Okay, he was recruited after I joined joined the company. Shok Bakru, still today, is a dear friend. He became my boss. There's only a team of six of us working in computer science operations research, modeling all the paper operations around the world. And so he was a great mentor. And we were working with a person by the name of Philip Lippincott, who was head of strategic planning, who eventually became the CEO. And he really worked with Ashok and me, and he liked us a lot, gave us a lot of opportunities. So I would say that two, two and a half years I spent at Scott Paper were very good learning experiences to how the, we we had no history of corporate world or corporate experience in India or anywhere else. So that was good just to see how big companies work. And that was very helpful. And while I was there, for whatever reason, I felt like two things. One was my parents were alive and they wanted us to come back to India. And the second thing is, for whatever reason, I felt, you know, computer science, operations research, this is not really something that I can get excited about or build a career. I want to be in finance or some other function that is more mainstream in the company. So while I was there, I finished my MBA at night school, which was paid for by Scott Paper at Drexel University. So in 1992, I got my MBA in finance from Drexel. But I would say that in terms of foundation, friendship, learning about big corporations was very interesting. One other thing I would mention, because this is relevance uh, as we talk some more, Scott Paper went from the peak of their business to really become a main company that was in trouble. But what happened was they were king of the hill and tissues paid and towels. And Procter & Gamble acquired this paper company and came out with Pampers and other things. And their technology was far superior. Procter & Gamble had much better access to distribution supermarkets than Scott Paper did. And they came in and their branding power, their shelf space, and Scott Paper really struggled. And so when I finished my MBA and my parents wanted me to go back, I said, oh my God, I'm only here two years, I may get fired, despite the fact I had great support. And those two fears and then desire to go back to India really led me to do, start job searching. And that's really where, again, I got two or three offers. I ended up joining Roman Haas in November of 1971. And Ashok and Phil Lippincott tried to persuade me that you know, I had great opportunities at Scott, I should stay. But yeah. once I made a decision, and the reason they joined Scott was interesting. Roman Haas was interesting because Scott Paper had no operations in India. Right. And Roman Haas had two joint ventures with the Modi family in India. And I was moving in finance and they had operations in India. So I thought that would be my ticket to go back to India. Right. 
And we did not have to relocate where we had friend circle in Philadelphia. So we stayed in the same house and just moved to the other company. So that's how I joined Roman Haas in 1970. So the reasons why you could potentially move to India, but you never did, though. Never did. <laughs> <laughs> but the journey with Roman Haas was a long journey for you, right? And it was a long, fascinating journey. I just, the more I think about it and reflect, what an amazing experience it was personally and professionally. I mean, Any inflection know, points in that period that you said that were critical? Yeah, actually, there were few. So I started in finance and just Overall, I had 13 jobs in that company, worked in three continents, and I had 17 bosses. <laughs> okay, from British boss, Yugoslavian boss, I mean, you name it. Okay, so I survived all of it. So the journey was interesting. So literally two, two and a half years into my job, and I given my computer experience and finance, one day my CFO, whom I reported to, came to me and said, Raj. The CEO wants to talk to you. So I got scared. I said, I don't know. <laughs> what did I do wrong? So Vince Gregory called me and he said, Raj, we need to do some long-term planning. We have never done long-term planning. And Fred Schaefer, who's the CFO, says, you're the right person to do it. So you're going to become my assistant. And you're going to help us prepare a five-year plan. And that year and a half, two years with him as assistant was an amazing experience. Wow. You know, I literally doubled my salary within a year and a half. I'm 16. But maybe the experience also, right? It was the experience was amazing. Yeah. He had me prepare these, and instead of somebody else presenting it to the group of 200 senior executives, said, Raj, you're going to tell them what is wow. our five plan in, in the audience, in front of the audience of 200 people. Wow. I mean, it was an amazing experience. While we were going through this in 1973, 74, when the oil crisis hit, and we had a fiber business, we made nylon and polyester, which was draining money. And we were not at the best of position. And I was working for him. I could see the stress in the organization. He got me involved in things that were pretty transformational for the company. You know, I was like a 27, 28-year-old young man and traveled with him around the world and meeting very senior people in different companies and eventually being part of the sale of our fibers business to, to another company, a Japanese company. And, you know, we, we were in a crisis point and I saw how the crisis unfolded and how we navigated during that period of time. And that was a fascinating experience for two days working for him. And then for whatever reason, I was in finance and I always told my boss, I want to be in business. And I want to, this was a very global company. And I always said, I want to be in an overseas assignment. So lo and behold, the next turning point was in 1978. And I was told that your next assignment is going to be in England as the finance chief of our UK operations, which was the second biggest operations of the country outside of the United States. And Kamla was in India. And I told my well, I will accept it because I just wanted to be there, right? I told her at the airport, we're moving to England next month or something like that. But there was something very interesting that happened. 
So the CEO at that time, Vince Gregory, he was sort of my mentor. He, were, he lived in England for 15 years. His wife was English, and he knew exactly the South Asian and Indian relationship in Britain. Before I said yes, he said, Raj, I just want you to know one thing. I know you're hesitating. This is not the country you necessarily wanted to go back and work. But here's the deal. If six months you are there, you don't like it, give me a call, we'll bring you back. And I would say both first and again, 78 to 81, 82, 83 was a tough time for South Asians in Britain. That's when the Brixton riots happened, Paki stuff happened. Yeah. And that's where Vanita, our younger daughter, was four years old and saw it, heard it, saw French fries being thrown at her and her grandmother and her mother and a McDonald's store, all of that. And so it was a very testy time. And even yeah. at work, you know, I was tested more than once. But again, the IIT experience, childhood experience, just dealt with it. It is what it is, and then eventually come to terms with it, and people around you will come to terms and say, you know, I'm not going anywhere, and you have to deal with what you got. Mm -hmm. So that was a big, important turning point for me, career-wise, to accept that and survive and thrive, because I led major restructuring of our UK operations, which was draining resources. Then another, another turning point four years later, they came to me, okay, you want to be in business, so we are going to send you to Brazil wow. to be number two at a Brazilian operation. So I had the courage or whatever it was, I was talking to somebody in position of authority. I said, why are you sending me to Brazil? Send me to another position in Europe because this is the region I've worked with for seven, eight years. I know what we can do. And I can have more impact here than I would learn in going to Brazil. And lo and behold, they sent us to France for five years. And that's where I led the entire restructuring of our European operations to comply with the emergence of EU. But we had multiple factories making same stuff as small scale in Spain, and Germany, and France, and UK, all those. We consolidated those in about three or four sites. And I led the transformation, which was a very interesting journey because I was working through influence, not by authority. And many of the country managers, the factory managers, the business leaders didn't like what I was doing. But I had the support of the leaders in the company to say, this is the right thing for the company to do. And they were my mentors. They, had, they were in position of influence. That was another business role. So I think the variety of experiences helped a lot in terms of building my own confidence. I mean, when you did the restructuring, there must have been a lot of pushback because I presume there was loss of jobs and everything else. So Huge amount of factories closing, loss of jobs, and you know somebody saying, why are you favoring this? And of yeah. course, we had Italian head of Italy, we had a French guy, French head mm -hmm. of France, and English-wise, everybody was unhappy with yeah. what I was doing. But you dealt with it. I dealt with it. And you I had dealt. support back from Philadelphia. I had the support back from U.S., and I had support back from the senior leadership in Europe, they said the compelling logic that I'm presenting here really says we have to do this if you want to be successful down the road. And so you became well-rounded in multiple locations, also restructuring finance. You got a lot of exposure. Is that how you ended up at the top 
So that all those things led to another interesting situation in France. So we were in this business of water treatment chemicals called ion exchange resins, and we were a world leader. And we were fortunate to acquire the number two company in the world, which was at big facilities in France, UK, and US, and a recognized brand name. And so when we acquired, we had to go through Justice Department approval and all kinds of things. I said, this is, since you've been pushing this combination, we want you to run this business. I was barely speaking French in those days, and they resented us because we were their fierce competitor. They did not yeah. want to be part of this company. They put every hurdle you can think of. So to give credit it to was a hostile, It was a hostile merger. Well, it was a hostile takeover. It took yeah. about nine months of approval process. It was owned by a U.S. company, but it was basically a French-run company okay. by French people. And I was made the general manager of this combined operation, and I lost most of the senior management in the acquired company. And not only that, they went to another competition and stole out of stuff from us. So that was another interesting <laughs> experience, different culture. You wasn't sure who to trust, who not to trust, and how to justify the investment that we made in this acquisition. And I headed that up for three years and made it work. And I, so I think that was my first business job. So you can see, you know, my experience has yeah. been Jobs were created for me and eliminated afterwards. Oh, I was done with true. them. Special projects. Because I'm not a chemical engineer. I'm not a chemist. And right. this was a tech chemical company. So I was using more my ability to connect the dots, my logic, my understanding of numbers, and what I think is the right thing to do. And working with people who were imminently more qualified about business than I was to really deliver those results. And I think that was my first business experience and probably more transformational in terms of my moving to other roles down the road. But must have been pretty stressful those three years in France, right? Uh, it was. I mean, you know, I was hesitant to even go to my cafeteria because there will be some nasty stuff written yeah. about what is this Indian guy doing, mm -hmm. telling us what to do kind of thing on the yeah. boards. Right. And I would walk into the coffee room, there'll be complete silence. How do you deal with that, Raj? I mean, that's not easy stuff at a personal level also. I would say a couple of things. First, my wife, Kamla, has been an amazing supporter. Okay. I mean, she's adventurous. You know, she didn't speak a word of English when she came to the United States. And I'll talk mm. a little bit more about her as to how she has evolved and grown. Only regret is she has never worked. And she's not been as successful as her two daughters and me. But outside of that, she has been. Well, incredible. she's been successful with. Well, she has. That's what I keep telling her. I said, yeah, I more successful I, in many ways. And, yeah, absolutely. And more successful. But she, maybe you should tell her. So she has always been the rock at home in terms of both making sure families in good fed and I am supported. So during those three years, she was a big support to you? Huge supporter. I mean, socializing, keeping track of the family, taking care of the girls. I was traveling a lot. She was amazing, learning the language, everything. I mean, it's really pretty remarkable what she was able to do, learning French to play bridge in French, you know, learning all kinds mm -hmm. of things. So that, that was a big help. The other thing was I found one of my neighbors in France, a pretty global guy, married to an Egyptian woman, and he was like my sounding board. You know, once a week, I'll be, he'll just have a glass of wine and chat about 
Philippe, I'm just facing this. How would you deal with it? And he was extremely helpful. But saying, he was not in the same business. Oh, no, he was a banker. He was a banker. He was, he was a banker. He was not even in the same company. You know, I so he was just a wise man. He's a wise man, and I felt comfortable enough to share with him how, what I was facing and how to deal with it. And he had worked abroad. He was very multicultural. He was always so helpful in terms of sharing how to deal in the French culture and the French people or the French Union in circumstances like that. I think those are the two resources that were then. Of course, you know, I always had support of my superiors in London, the regional headquarters in Philadelphia. But at the end of the day, you have to produce results. But it was Kamla and Philip, really, who were kind of the rocks. Those were the rocks. Absolutely. So then you went back from France then? No, actually. So after we finished this job in Iron Exchange Resident, built a solid position, realized the value of our investment. Uh, I got a call from London saying, you know, we want this person is decided to leave and we want you to run a global business in London, which has never been done. We were mm. a very regional or country-oriented organization, but we were thinking about a new model building of running global businesses. And it's going to be our first experiment. So in 1988, I moved back to London and I was given responsibility for global business for what we call plastics additives. And these are products that go into PVC to make roofs and bottles and all kinds of high-performance plastics. And it was a global business with two, one joint venture with the Japanese technology, and then the rest of it was owned by us. Plant in Japan, plant in Singapore, two plants in Europe, two in the U.S., all around. Very global business. And I headed that up for about three years and you know, set up two really strong joint ventures with the Japanese company who were more adversaries than friends. And that's when I traveled a lot to China and, and, and Japan and, and Asia. So I did that for about three, four years, from 88 to 93. And now there's one more turning point. So I was in the U.S. I'd been away for 15 years. So I came to U.S. for a business trip. And as I was partying, I went to my CEO's office just to say hello. And I asked him, and he'd been very instrumental. And This was not Vince, right? No, it was his replacement, uh, okay. Larry Volk, who again still remains it incredibly close friend. Mm. Another completely different story. I went to Larry's office and he was again a man of few words like my dad. Mm. (laughs) But the two things about him were unique. One was, if you ask a question, you'll get a straight answer. And the second thing, he was a totally apolitical person. He never would tolerate anybody talking negatively about their peers or their colleagues at all. And so I asked him a question. I said, it's time. I said, Larry, I only have one question for you. Is my career behind me or ahead of me? And he thought for about long 10 seconds. And he said, it is definitely ahead of you. If I thought you would make a great CFO, I would have appointed you CFO last year. But I have something better for you in mind. Okay? And so he said, your career is definitely ahead of you. It's not behind you. A week later, he calls me. He says, Raj. I and board have decided that we are underrepresented in Asia and we are behind in terms of speed with which we are moving. 
So your next job is going to be head of Asia. And other condition is that you're going to do this from Philadelphia. Your two daughters are in college. And the reason you need to be in Philadelphia is that you have been off the reservation for 15 years. And every important decision about Asia is going to be made by senior executives in Philadelphia. Asia is a vast territory. You and Kamala can travel wherever you want, whenever you want. We'll never question you, but put Roman Haas on the map in Asia. So that was in 1993. And at that time, you know, our 5% of our revenues and 5% of our profits came from Asia. Five years I was there, we built six factories in China, two in India, one in Indonesia, one in Thailand, one in Japan. And by the time we finished, 30% of our revenue by 98 came from Asia and 40% of our profit came from Asia. And frankly, at the end of the day, that's what led to my being selected as CEO. And Kunma and I traveled six months a year from New Zealand to Japan, from Indonesia to India. I lived out of hotels. <laughs> but the kids were out by then. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, young, younger one was at Yale undergrad. The other one was doing engineering at MIT. So in summertime, we wouldn't travel when they were at home. But rest of the time, we were on the road for road. five years. <laughs> wow. But it was, what an experience. What an experience. And, you know, I mean, it was very funny because you got a different, especially in Japan, China, in particular, even in Australia, they would see this Indian guy being senior role in those days. It was not seen. So more curiosity and rather than saying, what's going on here? But once they got to know, again, another example, not easy to get to know the Japanese people. Kamala and I made some amazing friends in Japan. So that was the five years of People are people everywhere, I think, Raj. That's what it is. That's really what I've learned in life is we all have the same ambitions and goals. And unfortunately, we focus too much on differences than what drives us as common. There are so many things. We all want to do the same thing. Work hard, contribute, be rewarded and acknowledged, and be treated as human beings. That's all we want. We focus on you know, color, gender, this, religion, all kinds of stuff, which is noise at the end of the day. I, I shouldn't say that. Raj, to finish the Roman Haas story, because there's a few other things, was Larry the person who got you the CEO role, or was he gone, or what happened by that? You know, so I would say, you know, we only had five CEOs in 100-year history of the company. Oh, my gosh. There was the founder, then the son. Founder was there for 40 years. The son was right. there for 10 years, and then was Vince Gregory, the first Vince. non-member. He was there for 20 years. Larry was there for 10 years, and I was there for 10 years. And so it was a company that was great value in culture, very global mindset. And I would say ahead of its time in terms of accepting, because you know, we had two German co-founders, yeah. uh, ahead of its time in terms of diversity and accepting people as they were. I mean, we really were at the board level, management level. Uh, we were very unique and ahead of our times. When did you get the call that you're going to be the CEO? So that was another interesting process. So I think, first of all, as I said, I could not have predicted any one of my next moves. So I think about two years before Larry was planning to retire in 98, early 99, in 97, this formed a, what they call a chairman's committee. Succession. 
in succession. So they put three of us in there, myself mm-hmm. and two Americans. And three of us were sort of, quote-unquote, going to be contenders for the CEO position. And, uh, you know, again, given the culture of the company, three of us decided that while this is going on, we are going to not align other people behind us and promote us or pay politics. We are going to do our jobs and contribute to the collectively to the company. And I would say, by and large, we pursued that pretty well. Year after that, it was clear that one of the three wasn't going to be the contender. He mm. didn't have the right qualifications. So it was then down to two of us. And I was competing with somebody with like six foot three, lean, thin, PhD in chemistry, worked in Brazil, Mexico, Italy, UK, US, head of technology, all of that. Very you know, similar experience to mine. And myself, a mechanical engineer, five foot seven, you know, and all of that. And I would say it was probably the combination of the board and Larry who sort of made it bet on me because, again, to date, I wouldn't know exactly what led to choosing me versus choosing him as the CEO. And uh, unfortunately, you know, that he did not quite accept this decision. But practice in our company was the number one got the chairman CEO job and the number two got president and chief operating officer. So he stayed for three, four years, and that was not the best team at the top until I finally decided with board's help to kind of part company with them. So I think that's, in fact, that's something I learned from a governance point of view is not a good idea that once you appoint a leader, have the leader, him or her, select their own team. Don't burden them with a team that's, Inherited. It doesn't work. I mean, that's yeah. one of my strongest convictions. Those in the selection of the committee board, was Vince on the board at that time? No, Vince he, had no, he had no voice there. No, he did not. If he had a voice, it was more indirect through Larry right. who was his successor. So I'm sure he had some influence. But I think one other thing I should add is that 35% of the company was owned by Haas Family and Trust. Yeah. And I knew all of them. So did my competitors. Vince had a very close relationship with the family. And I got to know the family as well. I mean, family had more say, some say, in this decision-making process who they were most comfortable with. But I don't know the nitty-gritty. You, you still don't know how it got picked. Don't you think Larry would have had a big say in this? Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, Larry didn't want you, then you would be the CEO. I would, for sure, for sure, absolutely. I mean, he had the strongest voice in it. And the one other thing I would say is, Larry is from Mississippi, Mississippi. and so is his wife, okay? And very interesting story I will tell you. So the day my announcement came out that I was going to be the chairman CEO and Mike Fitzpatrick was going to be president and chief operating officer, kind of forgetting his name, there's a fellow by the name of Shah who discovered AMT machines, at PNC Bank. Here's the patent on it. So he is a neighbor of Wilson's. And he went over to their house, just walking his dog, and op- knocked at the door. And Barbara or Larry opened the door. And he, she just, he just said, congratulations. And I don't even know him. Even today, I've never met him. Wow. And uh, Larry's and Barbara's response was the best person to get the job, period. Which is how it should be. Basically, very objective 
approach or whatever they went through. I would say, looking back, there were two things. One is I was more of the out-of-box thinker and unconventional and breaking the mold in terms of thinking beyond and connecting the dots of what we should be doing for the future, like I did in Asia and I did in Europe, as opposed to just running the business in a traditional way. And the second one is perhaps more humble, approachable, than, and more listening mode as opposed to just directive more than my competitor was. Those are the only two things I can think of. These days they call it EQ, emotional quotient. You know, soft skills today are even more important than just the hard skills. What a great journey. Raj, you've talked about a great journey, but you also have written a book called $8 and a Dream, My American Journey. What led to you writing this? Can you just tell our listeners, please? Sure. Before I go there, let me just mention one other thing. please. So in my retirement, I've focused on three things. One has been corporate board, both public and private. And I've you know, been fortunate to serve on the boards of Vanguard, Hewlett Packard, DuPont, and num- Tyco, a number of well-known public companies and about seven private companies. And I've learned a lot in the process. And I've served as chair of two, three companies and chair of committees in almost all of them in one of the other committees. And I think it's given me a very broad perspective in terms of governance, in terms of talent management, in terms of thinking out of the box and transformationally about strategy and how you manage risk. So what I have done in addition to the board role have been actually a lot of teaching and sharing ideas and publishing papers at Wharton, Harvard, and Hopkins and others. And that's been my passion and mentoring others. That's been another one of other statistics I give you, and then we'll move on to the book. Uh, out of the 40 senior executives at Roman asked, 24 of them have been CEOs of companies around the world. Oh, my gosh. It's that Raj ecosystem well, that my, Jack, my, the, like Roman Jack Haas, Welch used to have. Yeah, uh, Roman Haas was a mid-sized company. In fact, there's a Harvard Business Review article, The Stealth CEO Factory, and it talks about Danaher and Roman Haas. And you know, we have had more women CEOs than any company that has ever produced in our industry and around the world, from China and to Japan, to Europe, to United States, everywhere. And I think to me, that speaks something that's one of the legacies I'm probably most proud of professionally. So let me come back to the book. <laughs> so this is about 2014, 2015. So both our daughters had young sons. They said, Dad, you know, we sort of know the family history, you know, our aunts, uncles, and cousins, but these boys, as they grow up, no clue as to how, what, what state you will be in and what they'll know about the family. So why don't you document family history? And I'm not a writer, I'm an engineer. So I decided to get somebody who was in the communications, public relations at Roman Asset Avery. And he just came to house and interviewed me, you know, a bunch of times about just some of what we're doing today, my journey. And then as we were going through it, it became clear that the personal and professional life are so intertwined that and they shared, they grew up some of the same experiences and they were impacted. They should express themselves as to what it was like growing up with me. Yeah. So there's a chapter which is totally not audited at all as they spoke is from my wife and my two daughters. 
Then I said, instead of just me bragging about myself, let's have my writer interview my colleagues, my board leader, and my predecessors who were my mentors to get their perspective about what was it like working with me. And so there are a lot of input from the person who recruited me, Fred Schaefer was the CFO, Larry Wilson who was the CEO, our board chairs, Sandy Moose, and very important ex-CEO of DuPont who was my mentor on the boards, and I served with him on two or three boards, Jack Crow, about how he saw me as a board leader. So I think what you have in this book is a, in fact, if you read the Amazon quotes, it says it's a very authentic, believable story. It is not just about how great I am or what great things I achieved. You know, and I think one of the two other things I didn't mention is our older daughter, Dr. Amita Gupta, she's gay. And our partner is professor of neurology at Hopkins Charlotte Sumner. And Vanita had a marriage, a short marriage with an Indian lawyer, and then she broke up, and then she'd been married to Chin Lei, who's a Vietnamese. So, you know, we went through some interesting personal challenges along the way as well. And they are all documented in this book as to what this journey was like as we were navigating my professional life and at the same time dealing with these personal challenges. So that's really what led to this book is a request from the daughters to write family history and turn into something. And when I tested this with some of the people, they said, this is such an interesting and it honestly told story about individuals because most of the time when you read stories about business people, it's like, I mean, they change the world. and yeah. Everything is great. Everything is great. I share with them many of the challenges that I mentioned along the way and the way I dealt with them. Fantastic. And just please say the title again for our listeners. So it's a book, if I can show you, it looks yeah. like this. My uh, American yeah. Journey, $8. and a dream. Yeah, fantastic. I'm going to yeah. get that. What a journey. What a journey, Raj. Amazing. So you briefly touched on the legacy. So what do you think? I mean, you still have so much more to give, but just talk briefly about what you think is your legacy. You know, I think of legacy about is obviously by the definition of the word, what you leave behind. And so I would say when I'm gone, if, if there are two things that people can think of and remember is the family. And the second one, the people I invested time with and worked with, they realized their potential and more. And I would say, you know, I never say I'm proud, but I would say I'm thankful for what our two daughters are doing. They're pursuing their passion, one in healthcare, older one, Amita, is head of infectious diseases at Hopkins and has been working in India for 20 years, has got 200 collaborators on TB, HIV, and malaria. And the younger daughter, who is a civil rights lawyer, was head of the civil rights division under President Obama, is currently number three justice department, responsible for everything to do on the civil side, including antitrust, environment, human rights, civil rights, voting rights. And most important, her transformational thing was right out of NYU Law School, was saving, getting freeing 49 prisoners who were convicted in Texas, Tulia, for possession of drugs. These are poor people 
80% of them blacks, sentenced for 20 to 100 years in jail for a crime they didn't commit. And she freed them, got them settlement, and there's a book called Tulia. And that to me, there is uh, somebody who is so, they're both so passionate about what they do and meaningful causes, not driven by money, not driven by anything, but uh, making a difference. And I mean, I would say neither Kamala or I sort of basically told them, you know, pursue your passion. We did not uh, suggest you become a doctor or engineer or a computer scientist. I, I am just thrilled that they are able to make an impact. I think those are two legacies that to me are the ones that are important. Amazing legacies, I would say. Wow. The two daughters who've done well, but also the colleagues that you inspired and mentored. You know, since you used the word mentor and you said that gives you a lot of thrill, we are building this community. So if someone who watches your program, and we've had this happen uh, a lot, wants to other aspiring CEOs of publicly traded companies, et cetera, wants to have an opportunity for a discussion with you. I hope you'll be open to that, uh, Raj. Oh, absolutely. I'm more than happy to be open. And if, uh, frankly, if, there, if there's a group of four, five, six of them want to interact as a group so that they learn from each other and then I can share some of my experiences, I'm more than happy to do that. Well, that's wonderful, wonderful. Raj, at the end, we ask the same question to everybody. We're building that cloud. It's a very brief question. Your definition of Indianness, and we have had many people give definitions, but just a very brief definition yeah. that you have. So I think of Indianness, you know, this family. The second thing I would say, humility. I think by and large, Indians tend to be very humble and not arrogant. And I would say the other dimension is our ability to deal with complexity and uncertainty. Because this is something that we grew up with, dealt with every day, especially the first generation Indians who grew up in India. But I think it's at so many different levels, languages, culture, religion, economic status. I think we are just great at it. And the final thing I would say, the inherent drive and curiosity, you know, not just be satisfied with what we have. We think we can do more and uh, we can do better. Those are great ones. Family, flexibility, curiosity, desire to do humility, desire to do better. Excellent. Excellent. Raj, final question, which we also ask everybody. One or max two people alive, not your family, because you have amazing people who inspire you in your family already that inspire you, either in India or United States of Indian origin, or in India, or anywhere in the world. You, you, oh, you're talking about Indian or not of Indian origin? No. Of Indian origin. Right? Alive. Who Alive. inspires you? Can be in India or can be outside India. Yeah, I, I get it. Well, you know, there's so many of them. I'm trying to remember the name of the Akshay Patra founder from Boston. Oh. Desh Deshpande. I, I would say here is somebody who was immensely successful in business and uh, he sort of got out of it. And then really what he has accomplished since in terms of clean water, feeding school children and created this organization, both he and his wife. And I would say Narayan Murthy and his wife probably fall in the same category. That's and they, 
they're related. Those two sisters are married to them. I think both of those families, to me, are you know people who had immense success in business and then made this transition into doing something good. And that is just impressive. And I, I, we are trying to do it in a very small scale with our foundation, Ujala, as well. I think those are great choices. Raj, what a great conversation. I could talk to you for hours and maybe we'll do that as a separate podcast, but such an honor and a pleasure and a privilege to have you on our podcast. Thanks so much. Thank for you for the opportunity and thank and you for your patience. No, not patience. It was so great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Indianist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.